0: Venidos! that's California for welcome to the February 14th. That's the Valentine's Day. Let me say that again, the Valentine's Day edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. That's a lot of possessives. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at californiapolicycenter.org. One of those colleagues is Lance Christensen, VP of Education Policy and Government Affairs for CPC. He's sitting in here for our co-host, David Bonson, who's off promoting his new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. Lance, hello. Happy Valentine's Day, Will. Same to you, buddy, um... Big kisses to you. How do you uh how do you typically celebrate this with the misses?
1: My wife loves to make these huge sugar cookies for her kids and give them to them the hearts and have all sorts of candy on it. So we did that, but I don't like to make the cookies myself. So I just went and bought a whole bunch of crumble cookies and it works even better. So
0: are these cookies that are pre broken?
1: Uh yeah, crumble. Any of the women listening to this podcast know exactly what I'm talking about. They're massive cookies. They're Delicious and delectable, whatever B word you want to use with them. They're amazing. So I got a whole bunch of those for her last night, and she was very, very thankful.
0: Well, that's so sweet. Yeah, my wife uh, likes the um, heartfelt note. Um, Cards aren't necessary, even a piece of paper with some literate thoughts and you know for guys who are in communications like you and I are uh, suddenly it really is interesting as a, as a writing experiment to get in touch with your heart and to really tell somebody honestly and, and that helps me realize that I don't always do that when I'm writing but it is essential. Um, speaking of the misses, uh, Heather took us up or I drove um because she doesn't i we we went up to Mount Baldy on Sunday. It is absolutely covered in snow lance, and I know you're a you know kind of an outdoorsman, not kind of far more of an outdoorsman than I but um you know we we drove up, hung out in traffic, then pulled off to the side of the road up there, and there were hundreds of people with the same idea, maybe thousands uh but they were all there just wonderfully in this kind of organic community. I don't know how else to describe it, it was just, you know, the the sun was piercing, the sky was absolutely cerulean, just deep blue. The snow was whiter than white and here we all were, diverse representatives of Southern California, Asian families, black families, latino families, uh Heather and me, lots of other white folk out there. And all of us just like talking to each other and pointing out you know, in our own kind of language, the the peculiar beauty that settles on Southern California after a great winter storm. It was really lovely. Nobody was talking about politics. A lot of people were talking about the Super Bowl. Uh, so uh, we scooted down the hill, made it back in time for the big game.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. What's we actually over? did that this morning. We we took uh, the family, the kids up a uh, little. I bring our house early this morning and just got back to some waterfalls. California is amazing. I mean the the amount of beauty and grandeur of this country it's it's incredible,
0: yeah I, f- I find it really fascinating that you know this is <laughs> this is kind of the punchline to a lot of you know a lot of conversations that are very difficult about California. Why do you stay? And I'll say ninety percent of the time people will point to those things we just talked about. what a beautiful place to live. We are truly, truly blessed, and it is hard to imagine ever leaving a place like this.
1: Yeah, I made a comment yesterday about California and the dysfunction in government. And one of uh, a follower and a friend um, online said, "California's lost. Get out of there, and uh, you know, save your family while you can." And my response back was, "God bless you for those who have left and and made life somewhere else. I I wish you the very best." But I'm not leaving this land. I'm not leaving this place. I'm here to fix it and to save it and do what I can for my kids because I want them to be here with me. And no matter where we go, it's going to follow. So what happens in Sacramento does it stay in Sacramento? It goes everywhere else. It's a matter of when, not if. So this is the place we stand and fight for. And that's why I love working with you, Will.
0: Well, we'll come to that. Some of that when, which is now not if in just a moment. But let's start with a couple of updates here if we can. Uh, there was a uh, we, we talked, David and I did last week, about Carl DeMaio, who's running for the California State Assembly in an ad that he is running in which he really brings us back to the 1990s and Governor Pete Wilson's Prop 187. Lance, you'll remember that very clearly. This was a simple statewide ballot proposition that Wilson put on the ballot and and backed. And the initiative would have said, like, look, if you're here illegally in California, no, no social program support for you if you're not here legally. And for a lot of us, that just seems like common sense. But for a lot of people, you know, it's particularly on the left, but not only, that's a bridge too far. That's racist. It's outrageous. How dare you? It's always assumed that this is aimed at Latinos. Um, of course, we have lots of illegal immigrants from elsewhere. But the the point is that, you know, Carl is is embracing this thing, which ha, which was very controversial after it passed. And it passed by a huge margin. I, I want to say the numbers were in the 60 percents. And it was only a, a state court that finally threw it out. Uh, so here comes the Orange County Register. And, you know, our friends over there who are on the editorial page, uh, we're, we're close to a lot of those people. They think as we do. They are perhaps... Um, I guess you would say they're they're all libertarians, and that might explain why they've run an op-ed, uh, I think it was on Sunday, in which the, the headline is, No, Pete Wilson Wasn't Right, and Other Takeaways from Carl DeMaio's Absurd Ad. Here's from the Southern California News Group Editorial Board. The lead is former San Diego Councilman Carl DeMaio's invoking Governor Pete Wilson in his bid for California State Assembly. DeMaio's campaign released the ad highlighting the former governor's stand uh, against illegal immigration, Wilson championed Prop 187 in 1994, which sought to prohibit undocumented immigrants from receiving public services, including health care and education. Um, their objections, Lance, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but their objections okay. seem to be based primarily on politics rather than principle. My, my own reading, as they say, you know, it has to be said that Pete Wilson's fixation on undocumented immigrants blew up in the GOP's face. Hispanics overwhelmingly opposed Prop 187 and even now, decades later, have associated the GOP with Pete Wilson in a negative way. Um, they write, even Jack Kemp knew this. Now, Jack Kemp, for you know those who listen to this program, may be a very familiar name. He's the Los Angeles-born, former NFL player, brilliant Republican mind, who was a House member from 1971 to 89 when he joined the first Bush cabinet as the Secretary of Housing. He was VP candidate with Bob Dole in 96. Uh, the so- the so- so- SoCal News Group quotes Kemp as saying, Where the battleground will be fought is if they, California, want to carry this nationally and turn the party away from its historic belief in opportunity and jobs and growth and turn the party inward to a protectionist and isolationist and more xenophobic party. Um, Lance, what do you make of the SoCal News Group uh, editorial here? And Prop 187 and Carl.
1: I mean, I love uh, our friends at Orange County Registration, some it's Liz's friends. And um, you and I both have our libertarian bona fides. We don't have to go out and try to justify our reason. You've been around the street for a little while. Um, but I think there's something to be said about the fact that you've got to have some sort of border control in any situation. Um, for heaven's sake, when you come to California, you have to stop. Coming into California to declare if you have any fruit or anything, they do more protection of, of our fruit than they do of our southern border, which is, it's mind-blowing to me. Um, we're watching up in Oregon and different places, bubonic plague come back. There are other diseases and sicknesses. We saw this what happened at Disneyland several years ago when there was this big thing, um, all these big breakouts of different diseases. We found out these are usually kids that come from countries that don't require any sort of inoculations and vaccinations. However you feel about all that stuff, that's one thing. But the other piece is, too, is we actually have a public safety problem here. And anybody in California knows that when you declare a state like California a sanctuary state, you're inviting people to come, but you're not just inviting them to come, you're inviting them to partake of all of the services that we pay for. And a lot of these sanctuary cities across the country, but especially in California, are feeling the pain. I mean, places like San Francisco, that was very bellicose about its uh, sanctuary city status, they can barely handle their homeless population. And the crime and poverty and and drug problems they have there, you throw into the the mix a whole bunch of uh, immigrants who are not here legally, who require a lot of services, who don't speak English as a first language, who have different cultures and backgrounds. It just ends up in a big, big problem. I, I, for one, know Carl as well as you do. I've worked with Carl for over 20 years. I find him to be probably the least hateful person I know. He's a very uh, open and straight forward person. Uh, he's a kind person. Many people may not know that because they don't interact with him on a personal level. But he has a sharp mind and a sharp tongue. And sometimes he'll say things very directly and people don't like that. And so... Um, I'm not with libertarians, mostly on border issues. Uh, Cato Institute has a big open borders and whatever you want sort of policy. But one of my favorite pieces, I'll have to share this with you sometime. Uh, Joel Engel used to write for the Weekly Standard, one of my favorite writers, and he wrote this uh, parody of Imagine. And it was basically John Lennon's son. He's like, imagine, you know, no borders. So he did. He actually imagined that out. He thought the whole th- thing out. And he's like, okay, what laws are we going to obey here in California? Saudi Arabia's laws? I mean, because those work so well, you know. And he plays this sort of thought experiment about the United States not having a border. And so you go back to Pete Wilson. Pete Wilson wasn't a hater, wasn't trying to... um I, I think, be really mean or angry about it, those that are coming from the southern border. But we're finding that the southern border right now, Will, they're coming from across the world. And it's not just Mexicans. And it's most. It's not just Central Americans either. A lot of people from Africa, Middle East, China, and other Asian countries, they have found a weak spot. And it's concerning. When you have 10, 20 million people coming in one year, that's larger than, I think, like 20 states in the country that's just a lot of people to manage and so i understand the concern here Um, i'm not with this idea that we're xenophobic because we want to control that i think we can have a conversation about an orderly process but the united states lets in more immigrants than any other country in the world by far legally let alone illegally so that's an issue we can talk about more later if you want to
0: well you and i could um you know, we could relitigate this entire argument that's been going on for at least as long as the Libertarian Party's been going on, probably from the dawn of mankind. But my own sense is that for libertarians to endorse the policies of California with its sanctuary state uh, stuff, its sanctuary cities, its welfare benefits and health care to um, undocumented people, really, when you take off the libertarian le- label, all it really is is a grotesque expansion of government to include virtually everybody, including those who are not here legally. So it's just that, you know, the rules no longer apply. There's no limiting principle. Anybody from anywhere can come in at any time. Um, is that really what libertarians are arguing for? Is the gro- this gigantic expansion in public services and size of government? Um, it, it strikes me as counterintuitive, but, you know, libertarians have been at one another's throats on this issue and others like it. You know, one of my other favorite libertarian debating points is abortion. We'll have pro-life libertarians who say, like, you know, look, our first and most fundamental right is the right to our own personhood. And whether you're born yet or not is immaterial. Then you have others who say, you know, they they sort of endorse the left argument that, you know, a woman's body is only her own and the thing inside her has no rights. So, you know, libertarians are not a monolith; They're not hegemonic. Um, I don't hate our friends at the register for having a disagreement with me on this or just about anything else. Um, and as you said, we're both very much in free markets. They do make one other point that I think is just a really overly broad and not as smart as I think they thought it was, and that is they allege that Carl doesn't understand separation of powers when he attacks uh, sanctuary states, sanctuary cities in California. Um, his The argument in the editorial is, Um, While complaining about sanctuary cities is popular among those who don't understand federalism or the separation of powers, DeMaio is just complaining about policies which leave immigration matters to federal authorities so local police can focus on enforcing state and local laws. Well, that's misdirection because the fact is that what what the federal system says is that the federal government can't come in and commandeer local law enforcement just as an example they cannot come in and just immediately without some kind of real constitutional leverage they can't just come in and take over your national guard can't come in and come commandeer your cops but that doesn't prohibit the state of california from cooperating unless you have a sanctuary state in which case police are forbidden from cooperating so i don't think yeah. they really understand the nuance there lance
1: yeah, I mean, posse comitatus is a is a long discussion too that a lot of legal scholars will have. But we co- we cooperate with other states when somebody comes. If you have somebody who murders somebody else in Georgia or Tennessee, we have extradition. I mean, we have we cooperate on a lot of areas. To act like immigration is somehow, you know, prohibited by local law enforcement, they're the ones that have to deal with the after effects. You know, it's not the marshals that come and figure out, you know, when somebody's stolen your property or um, or done horrific things to your family or, you know, those kinds of issues. It's the sheriff and the police officers. So we have to be, I think, mindful of that. And again, you want to come to this country, fine with me. But what we're also saying across the border is a lot of young military aged men. And to me, that's concerning. It just is concerning. And I often think that if you have a country you've left and you bring a lot of value here, why aren't you providing that value where you came from? And at some level, you've got to fight for the place you're in. We just we started out this podcast talking about you and I fighting for California. We're not fighting to exclude anybody there. But if you're not coming to uh to offer something new and to grow and create, then then really you become a burden on the state. And we can handle a little bit of burden. But when the burden becomes overwhelming, that it that it, uh, takes over everything else, then the conversation has to shift to a reasonable, thoughtful process about protecting our borders.
0: Yeah. Ask the uh, Democratic mayors of big blue cities who are suddenly awake to the problem of trying to handle the massive influx of illegal immigrants. Um, there's another story here that I wanted to talk to you specifically uh, about, Lance, and David and I talked about it a week or two ago. And that is, uh, here's the headline from the California Policy Center website. Um, Rob Bonta pushes for parental consent on social media, but not in the schools. And the reason I want to talk to you about it is because, of course, as our VP of Education Policy, you're deep into the Rob Bonta dysfunction. Uh, but here's how um, Here's how Will O'Neill, who's now the mayor of Newport Beach, a uh, real friend of CPC and on our advisory board, just full disclosure, um, he he puts it this way. State Senator Nancy Skinner, Assemblymember Buffy Wicks, who both represent Oakland, stood alongside Attorney General Rob Bonta Monday. Now, this is a couple of weeks back to talk about the ways in which social media companies exploit the developing adolescent mind. Will goes on to make it clear that he totally supports this research into the destructive capacity of social media on young minds. But his point is. Uh, he says Skinner and Wicks have therefore introduced legislation to protect minors from social media companies. Their solution: parental consent. And then he writes a one sentence, a one word sentence. Seriously, under SB nine seventy six, a kid could not join Facebook or TikTok unless a social media company first obtained quote verifiable parental consent. Which, while I like the idea of my controlling my kids' access to social media, is probably unworkable as a law. But the workability of the law isn't the real glaring problem in the story. Not one of those three elected officials actually trusts parents. I mean, the Hutzpah. I'm still quoting from Will. I mean, the Hutzpah for Rob Bonta is unreal. He's using his state power to sue the Chino Valley Unified School District to stop a policy that requires schools to inform parents. If their child requests to use a different name or use a different gendered pronoun. In other words, Bonta wants a kid to get parental consent before joining Instagram, but not before changing genders. Uh, I could go on. You get the picture. And as I say, Lance, Some irony so there, deeply right? involved. Yeah, please.
1: Go ahead. Well, I mean, the debate over online safety of kids uh, on multiple levels, I think, is raging right now and it's a complex conversation because it's not something that as we were talking about border security there's not like a one-size-fits-all thing right it's almost on an individual basis i know with my wife and my children i have five children my oldest is 20 and my youngest is seven we have different standards for each of those kids about how much access they have to to the internet to computers to you know other things and each one of them is very distinct that said I also understand there are a lot of predators online that want to take advantage of that, too. Um, There's also a lot of people that are willing to scam and fish. And, you know, there are so many different kinds of of problems out there. And we have done a grave disservice to our children over the last three years by shoving almost all of them entirely online. Through the pandemic response, they all have Chromebooks and Internet um, access and passwords I don't even know half the stuff they're getting onto in school. And believe me, my wife and I try to keep up on this stuff. So now when the the state attorney general, the governor, other legislators are saying, well, social media is terrible because it's taking advantage of these kids, whatever. Well, yeah, duh. I mean, TikTok is literally taking most of our kids and smooshing their brains. You know, these these mass uh, massive uh, social hysteria that we've had especially over the transgender issues that is driven a lot by social media influence and so yes but you can't say and and will says this really nicely in his piece you can't say yes parental consent for internet and social media usage but not for you know cutting out body parts you know and basically uh, rendering these kids sterile and mutilating their bodies um there's a certain really uh, sense of, of sadness that the Attorney General of the state of California cannot make that distinction. And it's unfortunate and really, and I think just devastatingly sad.
0: You know, you and I have talked a lot about this uh, in the course of our work. And that is that, you know, here are the same people who are saying that social media is destroying kids are are willing to look away when the social media is perceived as progressive. So I'm thinking of the Trevor Project. Lance, you're familiar with that. But this is promoted in schools, in posters and handouts and classroom discussions as a safe place for kids to go and find out, uh, you know, to, to really explore their sexuality. So these are well, it's you know, even K-12 worse than
1: that, too. Sorry, I don't mean to jump on you, but like anticipating what you're about to say right now, the Trevor Project is a terrible project. Actually, and it's it's sold as a prevention of suicide and other kids that might feel different about their sexuality. We can we we can talk about the appropriate ways to do that, but leading a child onto an online forum. Well, where they will engage with men and women who are significantly older than than them to talk about the most intimate parts of their life. Uh, That's only there's only two or three words I can think of it. Grooming, predatory. And, you know, I mean, it's just it's like you want to talk about boundary control. You don't have any boundaries between these these men and women who have some sort of weird what's fetish. And, I, and I, I, sound, I sound like some sort of crazy weirdo, but like, I don't let my kids talk to anybody online, period. Like, I, th- unless I know who they are, I'm not going to do that. But we now have a lot of um, programs um, that are going in our schools where it's state law that, that we have to have security and, and safe parameters for their access to computers and social media and internet at school. There are a lot of standards about that stuff. But if you look at some of these books that now the left is pushing into our, our classrooms, and say, oh, well, we just need these kids to explore their feelings and sexuality, whatever. Well, in the book, This Book is Gay, it actually has a whole section on how you can get on around your parents knowing to get onto these websites and engage with people and set up profiles and have these conversations about sex. In the book, it shows you step by step how to do that so that parents and teachers have no idea how you're doing it. It shows you how they have different... Uh, uh, programs about switching screens. So if a parent walks in and you're on a screen switching off immediately, so out a know, browser history, uh, having back ends uh, around different uh, social media um, programs. My wife has some for the the two kids that have some access to social media. Um, but when you have those kinds of workarounds and it's you're being subverted at the school all the time, the attorney general, these legislators can say they want to protect kids and have parental consent on the stuff they don't. It's to me. It's just it's all hollow, all the way through.
0: Let's uh, move on to our buddy Kamala Harris, uh, <clears throat> Oakland Zone uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. Of course, there was this um, big dust up last week uh, when the Department of Justice Special uh, Counsel released a report on Joe Biden's mishandling of government documents that was released last Thursday. You and I are recording here on Valentine's Day. Um, That report found no criminal charges were warranted against Biden's mishandling of the government documents because Mr. Biden was, quote, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory and had diminished faculties and advancing age. And that, uh, the special counsel observed, would likely make him a very sympathetic figure for any jury or judge in a future prosecution. The White House, however, and the Democrats, you know, real Democrat allies came out immediately and just started to attack. I'm mean, really issuing ad hominem attacks. Turns out the special prosecutor was appointed by Donald during the Trump administration. Therefore, he's a Trumper, a MAGA guy. This was clearly aimed at destroying Joe Biden. Um, and here's Kamala Harris suggesting the report was, quote, Politically motivated, she said, um, this was widely quoted, she says, the way the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and is clearly politically motivated. What's weird about this is just two days before, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Harris told reporters... That, um, in fact, you know, she understood people's misgivings about Joe Biden's age and his acuity, his mental acuity, and said uh, that, uh, you know, those kinds of concerns are legitimate, but that voters should know she's ready to lead. Here's the Wall Street Journal headline. Kamala Harris says she's ready to serve as Biden faces age scrutiny. Now, keep in mind, the interview is before the report comes out. The story is finally published just as the report is hitting. Um, But here's Harris. She's sitting on Air Force Two. This is about a week ago before the report comes out. She's sitting on Air Force Two, and she's asked this delicate question hanging over the Democratic ticket. The story goes, do voters concerns about President Biden's age mean that she must convince them she's ready to serve? I am ready to serve, she told the reporter. There's no question about that. Everyone who sees her on the job, Harris said, quote, walks away fully aware of my capacity to lead. Uh, So. This is absolutely fascinating to me and perfectly in keeping with the contradictory nature of Kamala Harris, which is to say on Tuesday that she's ready to lead because of Biden's age and declining mental capacity. But on Friday, anybody who says that in a report is clearly politically motivated and a MAGA person. Um, So, you know, what do you what do you make of this? You're the guy who taught me the great line. uh, If Democrats didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards, whatever. So um,
1: what do you think, Lance? So I think the headline here is Biden is incompetent to stand trial. And this is the guy that's holding all the nuclear codes and could command us into war um when other countries see weakness they bounce this is what happens <laughs> like democrats let's say about republicans, republicans pounce well no other countries see weakness and they will pounce and that's what's happening at our southern border that's what's happening in a lot of the negotiations in europe right now and other theaters of war you know i've talked about in the past with you've got the russia ukraine situation china and taiwan a lot of places in northern africa and the middle east like we're on the precipice of some really bad things and the leader of the free world doesn't know what he's having for lunch today, right? And can't and, and has to take a regular nap and and can't stand in front of uh, of the media and talk for more than five minutes without completely flubbing it. I mean, he had the crown prince of Jordan standing behind him this week and completely forgot he was there. Like literally for uh, he was supposed to be here. He was supposed to come in the room. I have no idea where he is. And I just thought, you have one of our greatest allies in the Middle East standing behind you, the crown prince, and you don't know where he is? Uh, To me, I just, it's almost, I'm sad for the man, because you and I have discussed this offline, where we both have family members who've gone through this murder-loss process, and there is no reason that that the terrible people who want nothing but pure power are using him as a puppet standing behind him and let this old man who has no business being president in the United States. Politics aside, the mental acuity is not there and he should step aside, but then we get somebody like Kamala Harris who just every speech is a word salad that ends in a cackle. And it's really sad. I just like we're not, we're not led by the best people. And sometimes it's situations like this that I wonder that the Peter principle probably isn't, Perfect, right? That people rise to the level of their incompetence. Somehow, these people have so far surpassed the Peter Principle.
2: I don't know how <laughs> that
0: happened. Yeah, it feels like we're a little bit uh, weakened at Bernie's with Joe Biden here. Um, and I just want to make one last point here that you know probably goes without saying, but when Donald Trump attacked the DOJ and the FBI, sometimes I think rightly, um, maybe even oftentimes rightly. Um, the left how the media went nuts that he was busting norms. He was attacking democratic institutions. He was out of control. He didn't understand the Constitution. And yet when someone like Kamala Harris comes out and her allies, Biden's allies, the people surrounding the king, uh, when they come out and attack the same small D democratic institution just based on a statement they don't like, this is considered perfectly reasonable. This is speaking truth to power um you know again double standards it's just um
1: uh, all right well it's double standards but but also there's some truth behind the fact that there is there there is a group of people that that want control and power and they don't care who's in as long as they can make those decisions and michael schellenberger if you haven't read michael this week read his latest his latest pieces on what's going on with a lot of the just intrigue inside the white house and other places Michael Schellenberger, a steadfast Democrat, very progressive for many years, a guy who was, you know, on the environmental left, um, has become one of the preeminent journalists. The Twitter Files, um, one of those guys. He and Matt Taibbi, again, another guy who is not some sort of conservative center right guy. <laughs> they both have uncovered some amazing things. And Michael Schellenberger, we don't have to go into it right now, but those anybody who's, who's listening, if you haven't spent time with his his uh, writing in the last week or so you should definitely check it out
0: well why don't you send me the link to that and we'll pop it in the show notes shall we yeah i'll do that i i don't normally get a lot of value lance out of debates i find them really just I, you know i almost always watch them only because of work there's so little that's revealed Uh, I did watch the uh, smackdown of Gavin Newsom by uh, Governor DeSantis on the Hannity show. But even that was just, you know, that devolved into kind of circus and mob activity uh, with Newsom just talking over and refusing to answer questions. Uh, It was, you know, and the left, of course, from their perspective, this was all Fox News interviewing. But um. The Monday night interview of U.S. Senate candidates for California was illuminating in this respect. I knew that uh, Congressman Barbara Lee, who's probably now in about fourth place in a field of three Democrats, uh, Steve Garvey, who I gave zero hope for, revealed himself to have a very common man's approach, um, polite common man's approach to the problem of minimum wage. And that came up when, um, when Barbara Lee said, um, let's see if I can find the quote here um, that she says, you just need to do the math. Of course, we have a national minimum wage that we need to raise to a living wage, but we're talking about 20 or $25. That's fine. But she proposes a $50 an hour minimum wage. Um, This was met with, kind of head nods and credulity by the other candidates, particularly Adam Schiff. What a disappointment that guy is. Just every chance he gets to step on a lawn rake, you know, he might've distinguished himself from her at this moment, but he is very worried about progressive attacks, you know, attacks from his left. He's a, he's a moderate Dem really, but um, it was left to Steve Garvey to say, uh, if you look at what California has done to fast food franchises right now, increasing the minimum wage to $20 and what's going to happen there. That's going to increase costs for hardworking Californians to go to a franchise to get a Big Mac that's now $9. It's going to be $15. Like That's the math, Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee's own math is that she read a study somewhere that said it costs $104,000 to live comfortably in California. And if you, di- if you divide $104,000 by, I don't know, let's just say 2,080 hours of work per year, you come up with this you know magical unicorn figure of 50 bucks an hour and so if 104 is your starting point point hundred and four thousand dollars your starting point you come to 50 her argument is that's the only way anybody's going to make it in california is if we raise the minimum wage to 50 dollars. she has no idea as most progressives do not of the knock-on effects of that the unintended perhaps but utterly predictable to everyone consequences of raising the minimum wage so catastrophically uh, you know steve garvey um Rose, in my estimation, Barbara Lee sank lower than swamp level low for me. Uh, Adam Schiff, you know, took another ding. But he's just a reminder that he's like Kamala Harris. He will say in the moment anything that is tactical to say without regard to any kind of principle. Um, What a schmuck. Sorry, that's a nasty thing I think I said about a human being on this show.
1: (laughs) How dare you. Um, basic economics shows us that you can't raise a minimum wage. The minimum wage is $0. It's yes. the amount of money that you're willing to exchange for somebody for a service or good with somebody else. That's mutually beneficial. Um, a lot of people who are going to restaurants now find the kiosk. I mean, it's like the first thing you go to, I, I went to two to get my crumble cookies last time for my wife. I did it at a kiosk while everybody was out baking, you know? when i stopped by uh wendy's on the way home to grab a you know junior bacon cheeseburger i dealt with a a kid who didn't know how to run a credit card and he must have been in his 20s when he got done i was like oh are we done he he handed me his my credit card it hadn't even scanned through yet he was gonna let me leave without paying the bill and he's like oh wait i need your credit card again so he ran it and then he didn't give me a, a receipt or anything and i said are we done he goes yeah, you can leave now. <laughs> it's not, you know, I, 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 think that ex-
0: I think that experience, Lance, shows that when you raise the minimum wage to $20, your food is free.
1: Well, exactly. <laughs> it's It was just kind of funny, that experience. But Steve Garvey, it was interesting. I was watching him in the last debate. I didn't watch this previous debate this week because I agree with you. It just was not worth my time. Um, and I know exactly how it's going to go. Katie Porter is like taking my fingernails and scratching on a chalkboard. And she's just so, so jawing. But Steve Gary kind of reminded me, at least in his composure and his comportment, of, of a Ronald Reagan. It's sort it's of kind of that old, you know, slow, grandfatherly, you know, kind of approach, the, the old wisdom that you would get from a farmer or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, very measured. Like he doesn't react. He doesn't get riled up about things. Whether or not he's elected doesn't matter to me. But at least he was the adult in the room. When you have these other kids running around saying, yeah, we should. It used to be the, remember right before the pandemic, it was fight for 15. Like everybody wanted this $15 an hour. Well, now you get it and it's like 20 bucks an hour in California. And they're like, oh, this still isn't working. Well, well then let's fight for 50. It's just so ridiculous on its face. When you raise the minimum wage, you increase costs for employers. You increase costs for shareholders if you have them. And you increase costs and prices for the consumer. So you're going to pay for that money somewhere or, or somewhere or another. If you reduce the minimum wage to zero, things will flatten out and be reduced tremendously. But it uh, might also mean, too, that you have people who aren't worth paying that amount of money. We also cut a lot of people out of the market. I mean, most teenagers can't get normal jobs anymore because- With a
0: minimum wage, yeah.
1: There's not that opening area. Or if you have young single mothers or people who are trying to get back on their feet- that, that's a hard thing for them to do because now you've raised that 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 bottom run of the ladder so high they can't climb it at all. And we should allow our kids, I was making I think a dollar fifty a kid babysitting. you know, when I was a kid, I was 12, 13, 14 years old being set at a family with three kids I was like oh wow I'm making three you know three and a half four bucks an hour they might they might tip me five bucks an hour I was like wow that's huge money but now anymore it's like that's something we're spitting at for a lot of people so it's we're at a bad place economically when people can't figure that out but our math standards in California aren't that great either so <laughs>
0: Let's talk about the Wiener Watch. That's, uh, that's State Senator Scott Wiener we're talking about there, of course. A uh, new lawsuit coming out. Mark Joffey's writing about it. When, and uh, in that lawsuit, Scott Wiener's uh, legislation is right in the crosshairs. Here's Mark Joffe writing in National Review. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is suing the California Air Resources Board over a pair of Scott Weiner bills requiring companies to report their greenhouse gas emissions, Newsom signed the two bills in September. But the chamber says they're disastrously written in their lawsuit. The chamber attorneys cite Newsom's own comments when he signed the bills in September. Uh, he wrote the implementation deadlines in this bill are likely infeasible. That's a fancy way of saying we're not going to meet these deadlines. Second, he says, the reporting protocol specified could result in inconsistent reporting across businesses subject to random measure. He then goes on, Newsom does, to say, I'm directing my administration to work with the bill's author, that would be Scott Weiner, and the legislature next year to address these issues. Now, this would start to sound like a veto message, not I'm signing the bill. Right. Like he's already identified all these problems with it and says, like, you know, some Hollywood producer, don't worry about it. We'll fix it in post. He goes on to say, I'm additionally concerned about the overall financial impact of this bill on businesses. So I'm instructing CARB, the California Air Resources Board, to closely monitor the cost impact as it implements this new bill and to make recommendations to streamline the program. So he's got a garbage set of bills newsom does and instead of sending them back and saying your work is incomplete he says yeah i'm going to sign this let's make it the law we're going to create catastrophe because of all the things i've already identified it's problematic um the chamber identifies five other problems with the law but you don't even really need to go into those with a with a signing message like that from gavin newsom himself which the chamber is illuminating for the courts um, it just seems like this thing is dead. But naturally, I just want to point out, that's not how Scott Weiner sees it. He has responded immediately. I sent you uh, the link to his, uh, his press release. He said, the suit is straight up climate denial. You know, just constant ad hominem attacks with this guy. Straight up climate denial. It's extremist. It's carried by, quote, fossil fuel companies and big banks who want to mislead the public about the greatest threat to mankind. He said compliance with the bills is inexpensive and easy and then he calculates that it. it might be somewhere between a half a million and a million dollars to comply um that's great for scott weiner who's never run a business apparently and can't even afford a shirt when he goes out to join parades in san francisco um his pants i don't know if he knows this have holes in the back uh, we can see it but um but he's going to tell major corporations how to manage their business and I just want to say one other thing that Joffe says that I think is so good. This is Mark Jaffe, by the way, who works for Cato, used to work for CPC and for Reason, a Bay Area guy, just a wonderful mind and a lucid writer. Um, he points out that um, this is sort of standard operating procedure. And Lance, you know where Mark is going with this. You and I have talked about it on the show. We talk about it offline all the time. He writes, the California legislature often receives praise for being a lawmaking machine. In contrast to to Congress, which produces relatively little legislation amidst cross-partisan and intra-partisan warfare, California's one-party state government has few barriers to churning out bills. In 2023, Mark notes, a total of eight Hundred ninety California bills became law. Eight hundred—it's almost a thousand new laws in California. Um, so um, yeah, he, Mark is pointing out just the, the the problem with the sausage making, and and that's why I want to talk to you about this Lance because you've watched how the meat is ground up and really what goes in there—horses' hooves, pig snouts, uh, a lot of uh, manure—right uh, into the food supply there.
1: It's a delicious mix for sure. The legislature, I think, most of the members that are left in the Senate, the Assembly, they want to have their 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 trophies. These bills become more than just like laws; they become trophies. And so often they will go and fudge different parts of law just so they can say, "Hey, I fixed this law," and then they can run around for during election time and say, "Hey, I wrote a bill to." You know, film of like, to fix housing policy, to stop our homelessness problem, to fix you know public safety. Um, but they don't do that. The bills actually make things worse, largely because when you start to upset the apple cart, like if there's a significant and real problem, we should address that legislatively. Absolutely. But if you keep tweaking things all the time, remember, every person listening to this podcast, every person who lives in California, every person who pays taxes is responsible for every... Period and comma, I, T, every letter of every bill that passes every year. If you're going to walk down the street, say, hey, have you checked out SB 976? And are you compliant or obedient with them? They will look at you with like some sort of glass eyes. Like, what are you talking about? But I remind people, and I give speeches on this issue of why I'm a limited government conservative. It's because I just don't think we need so many laws to tell us common sense things to do. You know, and that the power of contracting could be so much better if we were able to make agreements between one another, and not have to regulate every little thing. You know, and what's happened with this bill in particular is the costs are always minimized. But when you actually have to comply with something, you have this thing called compliance costs. So it may cost you more to do this thing, but also all the the accounting for that thing, the reporting, the oversight, the government mandates, the permits. That stuff adds up after a while, and if you can't compensate for those costs, you're not going to be able to employ more people doing whatever, thing, making more widgets or providing some service. So these these programs that are supposed to save the Earth from global warming and climate change, the question is like, if you were to implement all of this stuff, what exactly would the climate look like tomorrow? And nothing would change. Well, nothing would change. So my question then goes back to them, like, okay, stop there for one. Stop
0: there for one moment. What do you mean nothing would change? I think it's important to tease that so, out. So,
1: so what I say to people is, okay, let's say tomorrow that every progressive dream, the Green uh, New Deal, could be put in place, and we would spend trillions of dollars to do all these things, greening all our infrastructure, and no more fossil fuels, and people live in dense cities. Does it stop raining next week? Do we never have a hurricane or earthquake? Do we never have hot days or hot summers? No, and even if we were able to to change the temperature a little bit, all we would be doing is just switching the cost to a different place. So for me, I just look at we have people in in Alaska and very cold places Siberia who live just fine. They figured out how to adapt up there. And we have people in the Sahara desert where it's very hot and there's not much there. They figure out how to live there. Now I would not want to live in either place. That's why we live in California, but we can adapt to things better than trying to transform stuff to change the weather. And that's the big problem here. It's hubris for us to think that we can change the weather and the climate. And then, and then everything will be at some sort of like flaccid level for the rest of our lives.
0: Yeah. I, I also think this, this is hard for me to say because I, you know, as a former, Comey, I used to say frequently what Martin Luther King did, which is that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And That seemed so logical to me. And the fact is that the injustice—if—if if you're a true believer—as—and I'm let's just stipulate that maybe Scott Weiner truly believes this climate alarmism that he's engaged in because it's good politics for him and his constituents. Let's just stipulate that. The fact is, California is not going to change china's behavior russia's behavior africa's behavior gavin newsom could make a trip every week to meet with xi jinping as he did last year once um, and cut deals with china china's not going to reduce its consumption of coal and other fossil fuels they are utterly utterly dependent on fossil fuels and primarily fossil fuel imports which themselves are you know climate climate damaging you got all these tankers out there belching their fumes um but California is
1: well, not. Here, let me, yeah, let me just drill into that a little bit more. We have this thing called leakage. In California, we have the best technology in the world, bar none, when it comes to extracting oil from underground. We have the Monterey Shale. We have some incredible reserves. When Sir Francis Drake was sailing up the ocean, to the coast of California, he noticed tons of these tar plumes all over the place. Those don't exist anymore. If you go to places along the beach, very rarely do you ever come across any tar patches or other places like that, right? So that doesn't exist because we've been able to rele- alleviate that pressure underground and take that stuff and refine it. Now, we can have a discussion whether that's the best source of, of fuel or not. But if you say tomorrow we have this huge economy that's based around oil products, all the clothes we wear, the cars we, we drive, our food products, uh, safety, storage, homes... If you're going to eliminate that from going forward, it's a trade-off. Are you going to cut more trees down to use more wood or more more biofuel? Are you going to go back to to uh, the Congo and take all those uh, rare earth minerals uh, that, that we use slave labor and little children to go and extract them from these big open pit mines at at pennies on the dollar in terms of wages? Like there are all. There are consequences to every policy decision we make. When you put up a solar panel, that solar panel will last for 20 or 30 years. And when you take it down, guess what? You can't use it anymore. And you can't recycle it. So it's going to go into a big garbage heap somewhere. And we're about to do that with hundreds of thousands, millions of homes in California are about to hit that 20-year mark. We're going to start ripping this stuff up. Where, where's that going to go? All these batteries that you put in these electric cars, you can't recycle those things. Right. What are you going to do with them? We have a huge problem here, and I'm sorry, I'm an oil guy. Like, If it works, make it work. It doesn't mean that that has to be the only way. I'm above all. If you want to do other things, fine. But understand the best way for us to power our economy is through petroleum. We can do it cleaner in California than they do it anywhere else. And when we shut it down here, that means we bring in the the dirty stuff in the Middle East and South America, and it has to traverse the oceans, and it's a terrible consequence there.
0: That's right. We talked about this, I think, last week on the show, David and I did, and it was, you know, really building off Ed Ring's wonderful Cal Policy report on energy. And he pointed out that after decades of climate initiatives in California, we still get about eighty-four percent of our energy from fossil fuels. And if you cut that off somehow, just on the the whim, the idea that somehow there is a quote-unquote clean energy. Uh, you're going to impoverish millions of Californians, millions. And it'll start with the people that are lawmakers, you know, Gavin Newsom and the state legislature say they're here to help the poor. They're going to be the people who are immediately affected by disruptions in energy. Um, Millions more will flee the state because of its chaotic energy system. Um, Some others will just simply fortify their homes with, I don't know, generators and that sort of thing, running diesel perhaps. But um, yeah, it is it's really truly remarkable. So this Scott Wiener bill, these two bills that are now under fire from the u s. Chamber of Commerce, um are vague, you know, just terribly written. And Scott Wiener's ad hominem attacks, notwithstanding, uh, you know, this these things are likely to end up right alongside all those uh, solar panels you described in a massive dump somewhere, Lance. Hey, Lance, you were really um we're going to have to speed through the rest of these stories. But uh, let's start with um, a Susan Shelley tweet that really had you lit up um she writes in on twitter we will include the link meet the people who think it should be easier to raise your taxes they're trying to pressure members of the california business roundtable to pull financial support from a november ballot measure the taxpayer protection and government accountability act that's the um, that's the statewide proposition being pushed by the howard jarvis taxpayers association our friends over there including john Kapall um, Lance, you were uh, pretty lit up about this. What, what, what is it that has you especially infuriated?
1: So we have pretty much every major Democrat, the governor, the the, the tem, the speaker, the attorney general, others that have gone to these, um, to these businesses and said, if you don't withdraw your support from this initiative, we will make sure you pay. I mean, that really is just pure political thuggery. It's intimidation. It's bullying um because what they don't want to do is have a threshold higher to vote and and approve taxes and so there's this big game being played where they've actually gone to court
0: tell us that what is what would this proposition that howard jarvis is pushing what would it do
1: so this gets back and it really gets into the weeds but it's the whole prop 13 you know thresholds for voting in new laws making sure that you're doing things in a way that you're not just getting them the bare minimum right so The way that Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association did is they came in and they cleaned up a whole bunch of kind of old junk that over a period of years, the propositions and state law and legislature, they cleaned it up. And they basically improved taxpayer protections for any of these tax increases. The governor and the legislature was like, hold on, we might need to raise taxes here soon. Well, they always like to raise taxes. They're Democrats. That's what they do. And so they've actually gone... And fought in court to pull this off. It's already qualified for the ballot. Now they're trying to go through and, and fight in the courts to say, we don't want this on the ballot. Well, they're Democrats. I thought Democrats believed in democracy. So why don't we let people choose that? So then they've gone to put another piece on there to say, well, if you do this, like it will undo that. It's so complex. It's really hard to explain. But there's a lot of internal fighting. And they've realized this is actually popular, that it's going to pass if it gets on the ballot. So what they're doing is they're now threatening the people that ha- are providing some support to you know to promote it between now and November. Yeah, let's, this is a really yeah. unfortunate thing for a lot of taxpayers.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's just look down the name of some of the people who signed on to this call to immediately uh, hey, you know to ask the California Business Roundtable to pull their support from the the measure. It includes Gavin Newsom, uh, the director of the executive director of the Le- California League of Cities. Um, you know, which is a group that. Claims to represent the interests of local government officials and is advising them like, Hey, you know, you need to to back us on this because you won't be able to raise taxes if you want to, or not as easily anyway. you got the head of SEIU, the President Pro Tem of the California State Senate, President of the California Professional Firefighters Union, the President of the California Medical Association is for this. Um, the Medical Association used to be this reliably entrepreneurial kind of, you know, sole practitioner, doctor's group. Now it's just part of the big government um uh, consortium uh shame on dustin corcoran the ceo there who has walked his group into some of the worst positions on some of the most obvious issues um if there's a lawn rake out there dustin corcoran's gonna find it step on it and smack himself in the face robert revis speaker of the california state assembly the head of the california teachers union uh the head of planned parenthood uh, because, of course, we need more money pouring into school programs that support all kinds of Planned Parenthood programs. That's where they get a lot of their money. So um, shame on these people. Um, you know, when the Howard Jarvis Tax um, Association initiative actually gets on the ballot, uh, we'll have uh, John Coppola on perhaps to really get into the details of it. But it is a, it is an attempt to protect Californians who pay taxes from having those who don't make us pay more.
1: Uh, let's talk about yeah, but Uber. But to have um, these prominent Democrats come after them, I think is is the really problematic part.
0: I agree. Uh, big story in Politico that uh, we'll I'll just dispatch with uh, fairly quickly here. I think uh, U- the the headline in the Uber story was Uber to counter California's labor muscle with thirty million dollar political spend. Um, The lead is uh, Uber, the ride-hailing and delivery giant that launched in San Francisco is prepping a massive cash cash infusion to shake up politics in California, according to plans revealed first to Politico. Um, I was intrigued by this because I've been the beneficiary already, the recipient of many mailings, political mailings that are supported financially by the Uber. What is it called here? It's called the Uber Political. I'm sorry, uh, the Uber here it is, the Uber Innovation Political Action Committee. There we go. Sorry about that. And they're all for Democrats. They're all for Democrats who are supported by unions. They're cross-endorsed on these mailings, not just by the unions, but by, you know, Democratic Party alliances. Um, and nevertheless, Politico pitched this as, you know, kind of going after labor. This is gonna be a big gotcha moment, and labor's gonna have its comeuppance for endorsing Assembly Bill 5, the independent contractor bill that was aimed at Uber, Lyft, and Doordash. Um, famously um, exempted from that same bill by their own statewide ballot initiative. Um, Uber's, in the same story, in a story in which they say that Uber's goal is going to be to fight against organized labor in California, they say Uber's rollout includes a $250,000 check to support Prop 1 on the March ballot, Governor Gavin Newsom's effort to revamp and fund the state's mental health system. So there's their first rollout, a quarter of a million bucks to support the governor. Uh, because of course he's not supported in turn by government unions. Um, here's the, here's I mean, one of the that's just political
1: patronage. Yeah, that's totally. just political patronage. Like exactly what are they doing that's different? I, I don't know. I'm not impressed by this money that's coming in. I, I don't think that'll be used for good things. It'll no, be used to I, to Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to show you, Lance, and
0: uh, you know, I wish I could put this in the show notes, but it's a mailing that I that came to our house, came to me directly. Um, And it's endorsing uh, Democratic State Senator Josh Newman for State Senate. It's a piece that looks as if it were put out by Planned Parenthood, because that's what it says. Planned Parenthood endorses Josh Newman. Josh is the official Democratic candidate for State Senate. And we support Josh. Who are the we? Democratic Party, Planned Parenthood, Teachers Union, UC and Cal State Professors Union, Governor Gavin Newsom, and others. And who paid for this ad? It says here in small print, ad paid for by Uber Innovation Political Action Committee. Ah, uh, Josh Newman, Lance. You and I have talked about him often. Uh, he is totally sitting in the lap of uh, organized labor, and particularly the California Teachers Association. He sits on. He chairs the education committee in the state senate. Um, man, if they ask him to sneeze, he will go and get pneumonia. Uh, he is absolutely hardcore far left. Uh, pretends that he's not. But is, you know, this is a guy who hides the money he gets for his campaigns by routing contributions through five very small rural northern California um, county central committees run by the Democrats. Uh, Millions of dollars from places like Humboldt and Mendocino. Um, Nothing, nothing shows up on his campaign filings from L.A., Orange County or San Bernardino in the district that he represents. But here's Uber coming out after this guy and saying he's great. Uh, this is what Politico called a battle to counter California's labor muscle. Shame, shame. Hey, let's yeah, move. Possible. Let's move quickly to uh, just a couple more stories here, Lance. One is in uh, Cal Matters. The headline is California closes prisons, but the cost of locking someone up hits a new record. Um, what's really fascinating is Cal Matters actually gets. You know, the headline should have been. Right here in paragraph two, the costs are propelled by, quote, lucrative employee compensation deals and costly mandates to improve health care behind bars. In other words, this was brought to you by the prison guards union. Lance, I know you have some hand to hand combat with those guys, having watched your own boss, uh, state senator, former state senator, John Morlock, battle the prison guards. Maybe you can illuminate the, the what, what's going on here.
1: I actually worked for governor schwarzenegger a period of time when we were doing the budget for the prisons too and so i actually know this very intimately we had more prisons about 10 years ago and facilities for our youth it cost a lot of money there were several lawsuits about dental and medical needs that they were trying to take care of those costs required us to have a receiver so we actually had somebody come in and basically babysit the department of finance because they couldn't get it right um, and the, the state government, uh, the receiver, were kind of doing a double billing. So there was money that was coming in as part of this federal receivership, and then there was the state money coming in. So you have all this money coming in and at the same time. Governor Brown and others, and then Newsom have been reducing populations a COVID. Governor Newsom basically opened up the doors. Anybody want to leave, go. Like he, I don't, I don't know how many people stayed in prison um, during the whole COVID uh, situation, but yet the costs continue to rise and we're closing now prisons up in Susanville the top part of the state and other places he's remodeling is it saying Quentin San to Quentin. be some sort yeah. of you know uh, another uh Model rehab. center type thing yes which again fine but that's some of the most expensive property in probably the United States it almost makes sense to just why didn't we get rid of Susanville leave that up there and then close that one down sell it off to developers make a whole bunch of money San Francisco and do some better things there, but we're not. We're paying per a hundred and thirty some thousand dollars.
0: Hundred and thirty-two thousand.
1: That's more than these kids. Again, the left gets this kind of right where they say, "Well, we could send these kids to Harvard or Stanford, you know, and, and do better if we educated them." Well, it just shows that money doesn't fix everything, and our crime is still a problem. Our education is still a problem, but we're going to increase our costs and send people to prison and not get a better benefit out of the whole thing. But, Lance, I think the the
0: fascinating thing here, as noted in the story, it says here, the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, which represents 26,000 prison guards, last summer negotiated a contract with successive 3% raises and other perks that will cost the state roughly a billion dollars over the next three years. The Prison Doctors' Union, which represents 1,700 employees, also negotiated a two-year deal with a combined 5.5% general salary increase and range of other incentives. The Newsom administration estimates that'll cost two hundred and thirty-four million dollars alone. Um, they they note the union could be a force inside the capital. It has contributed two and a half sorry, two point two million dollars to the campaigns of current lawmakers, and it gave one point seven five million to help Newsom defeat a recall. It also contributed a million dollars to support Prop One, the measure Newsom placed on the March ballot to build housing. That's the uh, Uber Innovation PAC's favorite one too, right? Support Newsom. So here's the deal. Prison guards, you would think of as rank and file conservatives, and they almost certainly are. You know, these are people who are engaged in what you would think is public safety, law and order. And yet, in your own boss, uh, in his instance, John Morlock, when he was running for uh, supervisor, I believe that was 2022. Is that right? Or was it 2020 when he was running for county supervisor? Um, he'd Which been in the state, yeah, 22. So he'd been in the state Senate. He moves down to the county supervisor's race. And the prison guards come in with somewhere in in excess of a million bucks, the deputy sheriffs, something in the neighborhood of a million bucks, to support, to oppose John, to blow him up. Why? Because he's a conservative? No. Because he's a Republican? Uh Uh-uh. Because he wants to reform pensions, which are going to blow up the state. And they do not want their pension deals at risk from a fellow conservative. So who did they endorse? A Costa Mesa City Council member who had called for defunding police. So, you know, here you have the prison guards who will tell you to your face, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, and then when they retire, we will take their pensions and move to Idaho. Why? Because California is a mess, they say, and yet they are perpetuating the mess they complain about. You asked about how many people walked out the doors of the prisons during COVID. Um, I don't have that number, but I do have this one. When Newsom took office, there were approximately 120,000 uh, people in inmates in our state prisons. Um, that number has been reduced to forty percent. Uh, I'm sorry, by by twenty four percent, by forty thousand to ninety thousand a day. So down from one hundred and twenty to ninety thousand, a twenty five percent decrease. Um, this is ridiculous on stilts. That, you know, at a time when the number of prisoners is declining, let's jack up the cost of of inmate of of keeping inmates. And we can have all kinds of conversations about crime and punishment, but one thing is for certain, the prison guards are behind the political dysfunction in California. The cops are, the firefighters are. We've seen just in our discussion today, the firefighters pop up in these really bizarre ancillary issues uh, that don't seem to have anything to do with firefighting, but have everything to do with the ability to raise more taxes. Uh, they are single-minded. These unions, and I know you watch this up close. Let's turn to another story that's kind of related. I think it's uh, also in Cal Matters. This is from Jeremiah Kimmelman, who's listed as a digital journalist, and I think that tells you why this story is screwed up. Um, because what are their uh, statistics? What is it? Lies, damn lies, and statistics. So here's the statistics,
1: statistics. Yeah.
0: There you yeah. yeah. So here's the headline in Cal Matters. Uh, a record amount went to lobbying California's government, who were the biggest spenders. No surprise, uh, Jeremiah Kimmelman's research shows that it's really private sector folks who are lobbying. And when I put this to you, Lance, I said, um, What do you think is missing from this man's calculation? Your response was, Well, all the unions, because they already own the legislature. And when you own the politicians, there's really no need to lobby them formally and spend millions of dollars. So, yes, this is data which is true but not really distinctive. It doesn't really tell you. Yes, uh, let's see who some of these big players were. Sorry, I'm flipping through the story here. We've got Chevron, Hawaiian Gardens Casino, the Western States Petroleum Association, McDonald's, and Pacific Corp. SEIU is in there. SEIU, which already... Owns much of the state house. Uh, still spend they. They come up number what is this number six on the top ten for spending there. So, what do they call that belts and suspenders? Let's own the candidates and then go in and discipline the hell out of them. Um, energy companies, Waymo. Yeah, um, I, I could go on. California Hospital Association, California. Most of the players who are spending this lobbying money in the Cal Matters report are there because they don't already own the politicians. The folks who do own don't show up, except for FCIU on this list of top 10.
1: And then you also see down at the bottom that a lot of local governments are also lobbying, you know, uh, spending a tremendous amount of money lobbying uh, as well. And in separately, you know, they talk about uh, the, the Metropolitan Water District in Los Angeles spent uh, over $2 million, San Diego County, another $1.9 Well, if you start adding all those up, all the counties and all the cities even school districts. It's a lot. It's hundreds of millions of dollars that goes into lobbying. And believe me, some of these lobbies in Sacramento, uh, many of them who are good and dear friends of mine, uh, they make some pretty nice retainers just to show up in capital. They don't have to do much. And when they need to move the needle, then guess what happens? Money then flows to political campaigns. This is a very simple thing. I invite anybody to do this. Go to Sacramento sometime. On a Tuesday or Wednesday, and and be there, walk the halls around 4, 435 o'clock, and then walk to K Street. When you do that, you will see quads la- of nice suited, well dressed people moving from one restaurant to another. And do you know what those are? Those are high end fundraisers for the next political campaign. And in any one of those times, they're raising 30, 40, 50, 100. per per event. So, this money isn't just funneled into lobbying activities. That's one important number. But who are they electing outside that? And the state employee or the government employee unions bring in, and what is the number? Well, a a trillion, uh, actually, it seems like a trillion, a a billion a year. It's a billion a year,
0: yeah. It's a lot of money. Well, Lance, that's all the time you and I have, but uh, I hope you'll sit around and uh, listen to this Really fascinating interview with San Francisco's Jay Dondi. Jay runs the Bionis Brianna Society, and he's got a really interesting take on San Francisco politics and particularly how conservatives, free market advocates, and liberty lovers can learn to speak progressive. Here's Jay. With us now, welcome, Jay Dundee. Uh, you're from San Francisco, Jay, and you've got this really amazing plan. But before we get there, why don't you tell us who you are and what the hell you're trying to do in San Francisco?
2: Thanks, Well, It's great to be here. Um, so I am the president and co-founder of the Briona Society. Um, and the Briona Society is a club for principled conservatives that support what we call a politics of opportunity for everyone. Um, what do we mean by that? Well, San Francisco, like most American cities, um, are really like one-party towns at this point. And the, that one party is increasingly supporting policies that we think don't work for the average person. Um, Who do they work for? They work for people who want to go to cocktail parties and brag about their progressive bona fides mm. and say that they support defunding the police or that they oppose public school choice or um they are in favor of harm reduction policies and then they go home from the cocktail party to their gated community where they don't have to walk through a tent encampment on the way to the grocery store and they send their kid to a private school of their choosing and they're guarded by hired security um and that's that's not okay with us uh it shouldn't be okay with anyone frankly um america cities shouldn't be places where small minorities of wealthy progressives essentially get to Bullied the electorate into a situation that uh, denies good quality of life to working families. So, in the in the broadest sense, I would say the Briona Society is an attempt to be a voice for that common sense working family majority. Um, now, there used to be an institutional voice for that majority. It was called the Republican Party. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that over the last or 15 years, really, neither the GOP nor the Democrats have done a very good job uh, listening to and advocating for those types of voters, the ones that are really more concerned with kitchen table issues than anything else. Um, and the result is that a lot of those voters have just disengaged from politics entirely. They've left both parties. And I, I think that that's a mistake because by the time you step into the voting booth, Really, 90% of the work of politics has already been done, and it may feel good to call yourself an independent. I get it, but in a lot of ways, you're just clearing the way for extremists to chart the course of our politics. So, um, in, I think, a more brass-tack sense, the Breonna Society is an invitation to those voters to re-engage in conservative politics in the Republican Party.
0: Well, I um I want to unpack all of that, but let's let's start kind of at the beginning here with uh, the name of the organization. I was a little familiar with the name Juana Briónes. Uh, maybe yeah. you can tell us a little bit about what you know about her and uh, why you would choose that name for your organization.
2: Absolutely. So, um, Juana Briónes is known as the founding mother of san francisco if you live in or around san francisco in the bay area you will uh inevitably find yourself walking through a park named after her or some statue or monument um, or some such and she lived here back when it was spanish california and then it was mexican california and then it became american california and she's just an incredible woman, and she embodied a, a lot of the spirit and principles and convictions that we think are um – um you know good guideposts for for politics today uh, she was both someone who had a lot of compassion for those less fortunate than her she was a healer she uh provided free medical services to um sailors and other indigent folks in the local community but she was also an incredibly strong advocate for property rights one of my favorite stories about her is that when the US uh took over California um the Authorities essentially looked at all of the landholding titles and invalidated, uh, her landholdings. And they were considerable at that point. She owned a rancho that, you know, was many, many acres. And here was this woman who, you know, an illiterate, uneducated woman in the middle of the 19th century stood up for herself and took her case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which Restored her landholding titles, so I think it's a pretty um, incredible story, and she's an incredible woman. We're proud to have her as she our. She is,
0: name. And, and she represents something else about California that I think is important. And you'll you'll uh, forgive me perhaps for politicizing this, but she stands as a great uh, response, I think, counter evidence to the claims of the California Reparations Commission. This is, you know, obviously <laughs> you mentioned a woman, a mm-hmm. Californio, therefore what our contemporary progressive friends might call a person of color. Um, and her color is remarkable because like my own family, she is a descendant of African-Americans Um uh, there there, are, there was I don't know if we can call them African-Americans at that point, of course, because they were Africans who were in Mexico. I believe that's how my family uh, claims that kind of descent. Mm-hmm. But um, she is a remarkable she is she embodies diversity, let's say. Yeah. Um, like, literally, physically embodies the kind of diversity for which California is rightly famous. And I, I would imagine in your own community that that actually is a metaphor for something, that it's a it's a symbol, perhaps.
2: I think she's an example of what you can do when you don't spend all of your time obsessing over the disadvantages that you Ostensibly suffer from whether they're real or imagined. You know, in addition to the story about her going all the way to the United States Supreme Court and getting her, uh, her, uh, title restored, she was also abused by her husband and mm-hmm. she didn't stand for that either. And she went to the local Catholic bishop and got a divorce right. from her, you know, her ne'er do well husband. Um, that's, that's an incredible thing in and of itself. Again, middle of the 19th century, a Catholic getting a divorce, a Catholic woman getting a divorce in these far away nether regions of California. So yeah, I, I think that her life story is just a testament and example to everyone. Um, that you can do so much if you just, um, Yeah, you're you're not constantly obsessing over how much of a victim you are, and you see yourself as an agent of your own destiny.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, I won't bore you with my uh, my soapboxing on the issue of the reparations, but I think that is primarily its major failure. The the commission claimed it was going to establish the historicity of the victimization of African Americans, and in fact, what it did was to wipe out black agency. It made black heroes in california mm-hmm. history almost marginal to the events swirling around them they were all just victims did, did of which
2: s- there are many of which there are many black heroes in california history too
0: yes totally yeah. agree yeah she is not unique uh, you know as as you know partly descended from african americans but also from uh from the californios so let's get back to uh, the subject at hand jay um uh, your your story, as I say, came to my attention in good old National Review, where Jay Mills uh, wrote about your uh, experience in trying to set up this group that is neither. Um, I, I think I'm, I'll just put it frankly: it's neither you know pro Trump nor uh, left wing, and mm-hmm. yet uh, you find yourself therefore precariously. Um, and in the kind of the crosshairs of two groups of people, I would imagine, the the left, the progressive, the political establishment, uh, we'll just say the political establishment of San Francisco as embodied by the Democrats who pretty much control everything or the Republicans who don't but fight over scraps. And And what you've illuminated here, what comes out for me in the story is the classic problem of why can't Republicans win in California? And your strategy, therefore, <coughs> seems to be that you're reaching out to people who are persuadable. I, as yeah. either independents or Republicans or Democrats, you're sort of nonpartisan in that outreach. Um, but how do you how do you make your pitch? Let's start with how do you make your pitch to people who are liberals or progressives? What what do you say sure. to them? You're at a you're at a cocktail b- b- party, or well, not a cocktail party. There is actually a picture of you in the National Review story <laughs> in what looks like a um, a pub, it's a brewery,
2: perhaps. a brewery, yeah, yeah. Right typical on. San Francisco locale, yeah, yeah.
0: If you're not at the Blue Bottle, right. Um, <laughs> So what's um what's the pitch to a yeah. progressive? Talk to me uh, as you would a progressive, <laughs> a smart German shepherd.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's actually a lot easier than you might imagine. And one of the reasons is that San Francisco and, and many cities like it are epicenters of failed democratic and progressive policies on a whole host of issues housing and crime and homelessness and education and so um you see poll after poll after poll especially here in san francisco but again elsewhere that <clears throat> show voters are dissatisfied with the way this city and other cities are administered um the problem is that the same people from the same party keep getting reelected over and over and over again and <clears throat> that's really that's really the fault of the GOP, in my opinion. Uh, it's because those voters don't feel as if they have a credible, competitive alternative to the Democrats who are on the ballot. Um, but politicians are always talking about how voters are hungry for change. And it, in San Francisco, I would say voters are starving for change. They're just waiting for someone to come to them, to appeal to them and speak to them about the issues that matter most. Um, and, uh, and meet them where they are. So if you'll bear with me, let me bore you a little bit with sort of some numbers around what the San Francisco electorate looks like. There are about 35,000 Republicans in San Francisco. There are 330,000, give or take, Democrats. And then we have this enormous number of independent voters, no party preference registered voters, around 130,000. San Francisco... Typically ranks first or second among all California counties in the percentage of NPP voters in the electorate. And if you look at those NPP voters, you'll see that at least a third of them, probably more, but at least a third are conservative. You look at the voting data, you look at voting behavior and polling. There's around 40 000 to 50,000 conservatives among the NPPs. And then another five or 10% of registered Democrats are conservatives. They're what we used to call blue dog Democrats or Reagan Democrats. They're just continued, they still are registered as Democrats, mostly out of inertia. You put those groups together, the 35,000 Republicans, the 40,000 or so uh, conservative MPPs and the you know 15,000 conservative Democrats, that's a pretty sizable coalition. You can make a pretty big impact on San Francisco politics there. Um, But the question is, why aren't those other people registered as Republican? So I think there are two primary reasons. One, there's there's definitely a social and professional cost sometimes to being an out conservative or an out Republican in one of these blue bubble cities. The other thing, though, we have to acknowledge is that a lot of these folks have really sincere and credible concerns about the chaos that they see in the Republican Party. And so, you can make the most compelling policy argument, and you can field the most charismatic candidates. These people still are not going to trust you. They are not going to support you or the candidate that you support or the policies that you support. Um, They require what political scientists call a permission structure. Uh, Basically, they just need to be made to feel comfortable. In a, in a gradual way with the Republican Party. Um, and that can really only happen, I think, at the retail level. So having these credible, well-regarded public figures being identifiably Republicans certainly helps. But what helps a lot more is if your neighbor or a colleague that you admire or a friend invites you to a panel discussion or a happy hour or a rally and you show up there, and the people generally have the same policy views that you have, but they're also charismatic, and they're professionally successful, and they're thoughtful, and they're nice, and they're they're normal, right? The title of the National Review article was "Revenge of the Normies,"
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then it I'm turns just
0: going out- I'm going to note for our listeners that you used "normal" with air quotes. Um, <laughs> you meant no disparagement.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, are are any of us normal? We're all involved in politics, which is, you know, mm. you got to be a little off kilter to to spend your time mm. doing this. But, um, you start thinking, okay, well, these are my people, and my people are Republicans. Maybe I'm a Republican. And so the way the way I phrase this, in short, the basic thesis is, you're not going to get people who have never swam or who haven't swam in years to dive into the deep end of the pool. You're not going to make some sort of argument where they're going to wake up and say, Daniel Webster, that was such a brilliant argument. That was such an incredible piece of oratory. I've fallen on my knees. I'm going to re-register as a Republican. That's not going to happen. You have to invite them into the shallow end of the pool, show them that the water is warm and then kind of swim over together. So you don't have to be a Republican. Be a member of or participate in the Brionis Society. We're a nonpartisan organization. We, we're we a conservative organization. We play in Republican politics because that's where conservatism has traditionally lived. But, you know, the idea is you start showing up to our meetings and you get comfortable saying, I'm interested in conservative policies. Then you say, I'm a Brionis conservative. Then you get comfortable just calling yourself a conservative. Then maybe one day you get comfortable saying you're a Brionis Republican. And then one day you're, you're a Republican. Um, and so, as I said, it's the Breonna Society is an invitation to, to re-engage with the party to those disengaged voters.
0: So it's it's fascinating because that is such an elegant and, you know, I'll just speak from personal experience. That's exactly how it happened for me. Uh, you don't know who I am, Jay. Um, you're not a long time listener to our show. But the longtime listeners know I used to be a member of the Communist Party USA. It was a wow. few decades ago. Yeah, it was a few decades ago. As people usually say about their sexual experiences, I was in college. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I laugh with my friends who say, you know, starting off as a commie is pretty much required, you know, in, in certainly in our, you know, roughly speaking, our generations. Mm-hmm. Um but it was, you know, it took me 15 more years, including graduate school, where I studied Marxist theory. I mean, that was my deal, was applying Marxist theory to American history. And there I was, swinging a sledgehammer, you know, driving round pegs into square holes for eight years. Um, and then gradually, you know, over time, what is it Churchill says? If you're not a liberal at 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative, I'm sorry, yeah. If you're not a liberal at 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by 40, you have no brain. Right, um, right. So um Okay, so what is it then about this message, which strikes me as so personally reasonable, because again, that's how I was brought into this movement, was by good friends who took the time to talk with me and show me what it really truly meant to believe in the founding principles of the country, the Constitution, the Declaration, why is Abraham Lincoln great, what about Federalist Number 10, who's this guy, Friedrich Hayek, Uh, what's he doing in American public policy? Um, but you know, you slowly, in my experience, I slowly moved. It took lots of good people, uh, many of them who I don't perhaps even remember appropriately, but you're providing that service almost like a lifeguard, as you say, you know, teaching or a swim instructor, you know, mm-hmm. taking somebody into the shallow end and teaching them to breathe and then take it easy and you go into the deep end. Um, so what's the, why is it that you have run into some animus in uh, local Republican circles?
2: It's interesting. So, you know, I think that there's always going to be resistance to change whenever um a new group of people shows up to an organization and points out that it is not functioning effectively. So I started getting involved with the local GOP in 2020, 2021. I had been involved in conservative causes before then. I know was active in the Federalist Society and law school and called Republicans and all of that stuff. Um, But around that time is when I think many San Franciscans will say the city started going downhill fast. And it happened before the pandemic started. It ha- really happened in 2019 with the election of Chesa Boudin, who everyone's familiar with at this point, and one of our currently serving supervisors, Dean Preston, who's a democratic socialist. Um, I started showing up to these meetings, and what I assumed I would find at the SFGOP is, a, is an organization that was thoughtful and tailored its message to the electorate that lived in San Francisco. Um, and instead, what we found really was just a lot of dysfunction and a ton of mudslinging and a ton of back and forth between committee members that had absolutely nothing to do with the basic, hard, unglamorous work of politics that that county central committees, frankly, are responsible for, right? These are supposed to be political operatives. They're not supposed to be on stage. They're supposed to be behind the scenes, educating voters and supporting candidates uh, and growing the party. Um, And so what myself and a few other folks who uh were on the committee and of like mind decided to do is we were going to establish this separate structure this briona society uh, vehicle to appeal to um disenfranchised moderates of both parties but what ended up happening was we sort of became the de facto voice of republicans in san francisco because the sfgop was in such disarray they were not doing any voter education. They were not doing any outreach. All of a sudden, here comes the Briona Society, and we're sending out this weekly digest. It goes out to 15,000 voters every week, and it's telling them what's going on in City Hall and what's going on in their city. All of a sudden, we're doing a podcast where we're interviewing the Republican mayor of San Diego or local activists who are able to speak and inform uh, voters about what's happening with uh, harm reduction or drug policy or homelessness policy we put out a policy journal right this is our attempt to be national affairs where we did a deep dive into how do we address the public safety issues in san francisco and um we didn't go out and attack the sfgop that wasn't our intent but i think that some folks in the established power structure saw what we were doing and were like uh oh this is essentially a threat to our continued um status of leadership in the party
0: let me uh, just jump in with uh, the story from National Review, and I'll just quote from it. It's a single paragraph. At one point, the San Francisco GOP voted to censure and disassociate itself from the Briona Society for, among other sins, condemning Trump for lying and alleging that he had instigated an attack on the Capitol, for insulating the demonstrators of January 6th, uh, 2021, for urging San Franciscans to get COVID vaccines, for describing Marjorie Taylor Greene as toxic for attempting to move the local party in a leftward di- direction and for referring to the US government as a constitutional democracy rather than <laughs> as a republic um so uh without asking you to di- to dive into each of these um uh, what's what is uh, you know the, the head of the party here i'll just continue the head of the party yep. uh, I, I believe it's john dennis is that right mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah, John Dennis says of your organization, I've defended them from some of the more conservative elements on our committee. In return for that, they formed another slate to remove all those people who have done all the good work and that have helped to grow the party. So that really seemed to illuminate things much more than the ideological claims about you know, <coughs> did you, do you like Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene or did you recommend COVID vaccines or not? Um, it's really about respect uh for the people who as john dennis says have done all the good work and helped this party grow or helped to grow the party um so let's just acknowledge that there's a kind of a natural human impulse there somebody's encroaching on my territory this is mine i built it and now you've come in and you've you're squatting on it or hijacking it or whatever right um but how do you respond to generally that the 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 ideological claims
2: yeah so i mean our slate, the one that we're currently running a slate of 19 candidates for and, and
0: let's candidates. point it out. I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, we no. Have ele- we have an election coming up. I should have backed into this a little more elegantly. We have a March 5th election coming up. And that means central committees are up for election and you guys have your own slate at the Briona Society for the Central Committee. And that's apparently at odds with the uh, folks who are currently uh managing those seats.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um so and I can talk a little bit about why uh the the slate and our being, you know, being elected or becoming part of the Republican County Central Committee is so important, not just for the GOP, but for San Francisco. Um But just to respond directly to, to the question, that slate is cross ideological. We have folks who are more on the right. We have folks who are more in the center. Um, and we chose that slate for those purposes. The, the, difference between our slate and our opponents is exactly as you highlighted. It's really a matter of um, folks who I think have not really been held accountable for a very, very long time for the decade 2 decade long slide in Republican influence in San Francisco. All of a sudden – being challenged um to do something about what's happening in the city um so i think that that's a big part of it john is a good guy you know i i've intentionally tried to avoid getting into uh, a, a mudslinging situation in this race i think we can win and we should win based just on our track record alone um we i think have done more to advance the conservative policy message in san francisco than our opponents have um and we'll let voters decide based on the facts yeah
0: so you say uh you've got a track record that you're <clears throat> proud of tell us about you know, you, you talked about the outreach, you know, clearly the retail politics is something that is often missing in yeah. le- on the left and the right. I mean, you know, I could tell you stories from the left about how many central committees are abandoned to a consultant because they can't find enough volunteers. You know, this typically happens in more rural counties, not San Francisco or L.A., perhaps. But but what is the track record? What, what have you done? You've got a journal. You've got these ideas that you're promulgating a podcast. I mean, you know, most of the work of the Republican Party ought to be about communications and training and recruit. Yeah, how are you doing on those things?
2: So I'm so glad you mentioned that. So first of all, um, the situation in San Francisco, I think, is similar to what you see elsewhere in California, where voters will get these ballots that are sometimes 10 or 12 or 14 pages long, and that requires a lot of handholding. So, one of the primary tasks, one of the primary functions of any central committee is to properly educate voters um, and to endorse good candidates and provide ec- good explanations and, and understandable explanations for those endorsements. Now, um, over the past, I don't know how many years, there have has basically been no communication from the local Republican Party to Republican voters. Um, and yes there will be a, a uh, an endorsement guide once every two or once every four years but that's not really enough right the the issues in the city are so complicated and so nuanced that i you have to do a a, a more uh, you have to you have to basically be more active more engaged in educating voters and communicating with them. Um, And and one of my favorite examples of this comes from uh, 2019. So, in 2019, uh, Dean Preston, the Democratic Socialist Supervisor that's still in office, was elected. Uh, There were three other candidates in that race but for the sake of this example there were only really two the last one wasn't really a relevant candidate uh, there was a moderate democrat in that race named valley brown then there was a republican in that race uh who i think he was a newly registered republican young guy Good guy, but let's be real, he was not going to get elected, Um, did not mount the type of campaign necessary to overcome the uh, electoral disadvantage against a Republican in that district. Um, We have instant runoff voting here in San Francisco, like there exists in other places in California. Um, And what happened was uh, in that first round of instant runoff voting, uh, the Republican candidate was eliminated uh he received somewhere around a thousand votes I believe and what happened to those votes well uh some of those votes about a third of them went to the moderate Democrat makes sense you're a Republican you've been properly educated about the dynamics of this race and who's running you vote for the Republican first then you vote for the moderate Democrat second another third of his votes though went to no one the ballot was exhausted the people voted just for the republican and no one else okay i can kind of understand why you might do that but then another third of his votes went to dean preston now i can believe that there are some republicans out there with very idiosyncratic uh, voting preferences that want the republican first and then they're like well if we can't get the republican let's just get the democratic socialist in there But what that says to me is that the Republican Party did not do a good job educating voters in that district about what was going to be on their ballot. And that's just a supervisorial election. Don't even get me started on the nuances of the propositions and measures and initiatives that are on your ballot that have to do with interest rates and general obligation bonds and this and that. So um, I think... One of the things that I'm most proud of, uh, you know, that the Breonna Society has been doing for the past three years is that we've been the organization that's actually reached out to Republicans for that time, during that time, and told them about what's going on in the city and told them what to uh, expect in upcoming elections so that when they actually sit down and and fill out their ballot or they go to the voting booth, um, they're not encountering these issues for the first time.
0: So on the issue then of, uh, you know, and both parties express this in roughly the same way, kind of a loyalty test, you know, there's the no no compromise faction on both in both parties. Um, I'm i think i understand that you're suggesting that in that instance of that that supervisorial race you would have said sure vote for the republican first you must Mm -hmm. but second make sure you don't vote for the democratic socialist vote for the more moderate democrat now i can imagine the no compromise i'm sorry go ahead well
2: no I, i wouldn't even go that far i think it would have been totally fine to say we're endorsing the republican do not vote for the democratic socialist and hey there's a moderate Democrat. You don't even have to say vote for the moderate Democrat. Just tell people the difference between the two Democrats in the race. And I think that even if those votes would not have gone to her, they would not have gone to Dean. And that race, I, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier, that race was decided by 182 votes. Mm. So if 92, sorry, 90, you know, yeah, 90, 91, 92 Republicans had voted the other way or had just not voted for Dean, That man who has done so much damage to the city over the past five years would not be in office.
0: Right. But I imagine that kind of nuance is lost on some people. And for other people, it's not lost on them. It's fighting words. Uh, You know, it's like Mm -hmm. walking into their house and punching them in the chest or something. Uh, They see this as a compromise. You're admitting the possibility that our guy won't win. Um, And shame on you. You're not a real Republican. You're not even a rhino. You're worse than that.
2: Right. Well, I mean, the, the response I always uh, give to that accusation is, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Ronald Reagan is, I'd rather get 80% of what I want than go over the cliff with my flags flying. So unless you're saying that Ronald Reagan is not Republican enough for you, um, I don't know what to tell you.
0: Well, let's let's talk about um, you know one of those things. You you don't know me well enough to know this, but California Policy Center was established about ten years ago in order to fight the problem that we see kind of foundationally in in California. I think everything you're doing is awesome. You have been endorsed, I think, or you know at least uh, you've you've received the support of the local police union. Mm-hmm. And you know my own sense is is that uh, all government unions are really the. the 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 origin story of why california is so messed up why we can't have nice things i i have told the story on the show before but i'll tell you real quickly that when i was a young democratic activist uh i worked on political campaigns for the dems this is you know post being a commie and registering (laughs) as a you know having had registered as a democrat but i took one of my uh my my candidates into a meeting with the local uh, police union And uh, I said, you know, I can't believe we're going to go talk to the cops. Like, I didn't know much (laughs) about this, but I just knew I didn't like cops because I was a leftist. And he said, we'll watch and learn. So we go into this meeting with the three union leaders. We sit around and there's a little small talk. And then they say, so, uh, you know, hey, dude, they say to the candidate, you know, we've got this big uh, budget fight coming up. We want to raise. We want earlier retirement. We want greater control as a union over hiring and firing in the workplace. Uh, You cool with all of this? Now I knew that the budget fight was coming up because the city didn't have the cash to accommodate a hike for police without a, a tax raise. I was okay <clears> with tax raises, but my candidate wasn't, I thought. Um he said, absolutely, not a problem. So these these three police, uh police officers representing the local police union poured tens of thousands of dollars into the campaign of a UC Berkeley uh law school graduate who had become a notorious uh you know Democratic Socialist of America guy. And did not like police himself, but he sure liked what came next was money in his, his campaign account and a picture of him standing next to two squad cars, a, a motorcycle cop, canine officer, you know, all of them giving him the thumbs up. Right. Uh, even though the rank and file of this union are cops and reportedly, therefore, law and order, they voted for a guy who wants, you know, has since expressed it this way, defund the police, mm-hmm. and they still support him. <laughs> uh, these, you know, unions are are a problem in my mind and I don't want to get you wrapped around the axle of of my analysis but sure y- y- you, you've taken that win of getting local police behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, the and I'm you're a smart guy, so you know what the risks are. At least as I've expressed them, you understand what I think the risks are. Yep. You may not agree with me, but that's what I'm asking you about. Like, is there a danger in taking these kinds of tactical wins? Mm-hmm. Endorsement from a union? <laughs> Would you take one from the teachers' union? Would you take one from SEIU? Would you mm-hmm. take endorsements from? I don't know. I'm um, uh, I, I, you know, sort of pick your pick your poison on the left. At what point do you risk becoming not just an alternative to the left, but the left itself?
2: Yeah, so that's a fair question, uh, and I appreciate you asking it. I think as long as we have public sector unions, it's not reasonable to expect that the police or the firefighters or the deputy sheriffs unilaterally disarm. Right? That is the world that we live in where budget fights happen on an annual basis between um, very powerful special interest organizations. And to simply ask the police to sit that one out, I think is, is deeply unfair, particularly in California, particularly in San Francisco and particularly at this moment when what they're asking for is very different than what you'll see from uh the teachers union or some of these other public sector unions. The police are asking, you know, I, think for reasonable things, we have a severe staffing shortage here in San Francisco uh, in the SFPD. We should have, according to a an independent third-party study that was conducted, I believe it four years ago at this point, uh, a little over 2,000 full-duty sworn officers on SFPD. We're down to around, I think, 1,400. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has a material impact on public safety. And actually, We should have many many more than 2000 one of my favorite um uh sayings i guess of of recent years comes from i'm gonna mangle his name but it's alex tabarak and he's a uh an academic out of george mason university he writes for a great blog marginal revolution um and he he and uh, a few other co-authors have done a lot of studies uh, and the conclusion of those studies is basically Um, more police, fewer prisons, less crime. So you can have all of those things that the decarceralist movement wants in terms of let's lock fewer people up if you have more police out on the street. And um, what we do in the United States is the exact opposite of what they do in places like Europe. I I, I love how um, Democrats and progressives in America have this fantasy uh uh picture of of western europe that is this ultra progressive paradise but if you look at police per capita numbers in cities like london or paris or really anywhere in europe they have way more police than we do and that has a a significant deterrent effect on crime you see a group of police officers out on the street walking the beat getting to know people in the neighborhood, just being visible, that prevents people from committing crime in the first place. And then you end up locking up fewer of them as well. And on top of that, if you are an officer in an understaffed police department, and you are running from emergency call from emergency call, you're not going to be able to do all of these sort of community outreach, community policing type things that I think progressives would like to see. You're just worried about, hey, I'm arresting a guy that was holding up a liquor store. I just got a call that somebody's trying to stab his wife. I got to run over that. I don't have time to sit and hang out with the liquor store owner and ask him about how business is going.
0: Yeah. No, that's a a reasonable argument. I guess I would offer from the multitude of counterexamples I've got where police unions – have insisted on pay increases that were so budget-busting that they were willing to accept fewer police on the street in order to get bigger raises for themselves. I'm thinking particularly of the notorious case of Vallejo City just east of you that goes bankrupt, gosh, I'm blanking on the year, early 2000s, I believe and uh the result you know coming out of bankruptcy was that the union did exactly that they said yeah we don't care if we're understaffed just make sure we get more cash earlier retirement better pension benefits so that we can grab our pensions and move to idaho and create (laughs) an armed enclave out there near a lake right Um, you know I, i just meet far too many union activists you know public safety would be my preference like you know i get The dangers and in the in the hierarchy of people who, you know, I would be willing to, you know, if I were made emperor tomorrow, every, you know, I get to decide only one group gets a union. It's going to be cops Mm -hmm. um, in part because they literally put their lives on the line. Uh, I have not met a teacher's union activist who put his or her life or their lives on the line ever. Um, And I know they're out there. My mother was a public school teacher. My grandmother was, you know, um, this is not a knock on teachers. It's just like, who's truly at risk? Who really needs the public to have their back? It's going to be cops. And that's, that's not a, that's not a license to do anything they want. It's just, it's a respect.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll I'll admit, you know, I'm a a member of a union that, fights for the underrepresented and oppressed with the american bar association it's really the lawyers in the united states that have been getting the short end of the stick for for years and years and years you need so a union my brother we, we need a union exactly <laughs>
0: So but you know so we I think we've established our our priors here on uh, police union endorsements but I guess the you know the bottom line question is at what point do you make tactical concession I'll call that a concession like to me conservatives have generally for the last 40 years opposed government unions. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see the disparities in economic growth and the malfunction in California. You know, we could talk about uh, AB5, the independent contractor bill, which was pushed by the same unions who are operating in San Francisco, primarily SEIU. Uh, AB 257, that was the fast food bill that has now led to, of course, restaurant closures, employee layoffs. It was supposed to make this a worker's paradise. (laughs) It has done the opposite. We're seeing fewer people employed in that sector. Yes, wages went up for those who survived the first round of layoffs. But there's going to be menu price hikes in the fast food mm-hmm. industry. We've already seen those coming. So who's going to pay the worst for that? Not you or me. It's going to be people who are for whom, you know, the difference of a dollar for a hamburger is a material difference. Yeah. Um, so I look at unions, and at what point do you say, you know, there's a there's a tactical risk that we really identify and we won't go that far.
2: Yeah, I think you have to just be granular. I think you have to look at what that particular union is asking for in terms of public policy. Um, And that goes for a variety of issues and and applies in a variety of areas across the board, not just with respect to whether or not you're going to work with this union or that union. Um, We unfortunately are in a uh, place in local, state, national politics where just too much of the red team, blue team mentality has infected the way we think about things and the way we approach problems. And instead, uh, we should be um, looking for places and areas of not so much compromise, because I know that that's become a dirty word, and not just in Republican politics or Democratic politics, but collaboration. You don't have to compromise your principles to realize that, hey, you know what? We differ, we differ and we disagree on a lot of things, but there are things that we we agree on. So why not work together on those things?
0: You're a guy who works on billable hours, and I've taken your way over a lot of time. Do you have a few more minutes?
2: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay,
0: I'll make it. I'll make it as fast as I can. Um, you, you, uh, your, your bio is really intriguing to me, and I, you know, we, we could have started with who you are, um, which I think is an interesting story. You say California by choice. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Where'd you come from?
2: So I was born in Israel, um, and I uh, was raised primarily in the United States, in Texas and California, but kind of moved around a lot when I was a kid. And so, I think it's like that saying that there's there's no zealot like a convert. When you uh, finally settle down somewhere, when someone like me who's moved around a lot in their, in their youth settles down somewhere, they really embrace it. And so, that's why I say I'm a Californian by choice. I'm a San Franciscan by choice. God help me. I love this city. It's a great place I know that um, we are a punching bag for Republicans across the state, across the country, and we've seen better days, but this is an amazing place and um, it packs an incredible amount of diversity, real diversity, not the sort of superficial diversity that progressives are always talking about, um, into a very, very, very small geographic area. Uh, you can start at one end of san francisco and be in manhattan and then go to the other end and you're in here in malibu and along the way you've been to hong kong and to yellowstone and a variety of other places um so that's why i say i'm a californian and a san franciscan by choice i really love it here
0: and you did service for the israeli defense force the idf
2: i did yeah so um interesting story i'll try to keep it brief um when i uh was in high school um my parents raised me with a, a really strong sense of duty and the the importance of public service um and when you're a, a red blooded American male in the late nineties and you've seen, uh, probably too many Michael Bay films, uh, you think that the best way to do public service is the military. Um, I graduated high school at the begin- in the beginning of 2001. So when I was mm. trying to think of what I wanted to do, um, you know, uh, I s- started thinking, well, do I want to join the American military and-, and spend the next five years of my life? counting paper clips in louisiana yeah
0: what's what's going to happen yeah what's going to happen for the u.s what
2: kind of a moron (laughs) would attack the world's only superpower right um and in at at the same time you know israel was uh experiencing the 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 depths and the throes of the second intifada and so there's this long established tradition of people going and, and volunteering um in in conflict zones, uh, for allied, uh, armies of allied States. And so that's, that's what I did. I, I landed in Israel in August of 2001 to enlist. And I still remember turning on the TV in, uh, in September, uh, in the afternoon it was it was in Israel in the afternoon. And I thought I was watching, um, I thought I was watching like a, a documentary about the 93 world trade center bombing. And then I realized that, oh man, things have gone completely, completely, uh, in the wrong direction. Let's put it put it that way. Um, but yeah, served three years in the Israeli Defense Forces in uh, combat infantry role. Um, it was a good experience. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. But I'm also very um, thankful and lucky for, um, I guess, the inadvertent choices that I made. And I'll obviously have a lot of gratitude for the many friends that I I had uh, in high school who went on and served in the U.S. military.
0: So uh, where'd you go to undergrad and law school, and how did you end up in San Francisco?
2: Um, So family moved to the Bay Area in in the late 90s uh, when I was in high school. Just That's when I started to consider California and the Bay Area home. Went to undergrad at UC Berkeley. Um, This is where I I also mention in my bio sometimes that I'm a lawyer by accident. my original plan was to get a PhD in economics, um, and these days, if you want to get a PhD in econ from a good program, you basically have to be a math genius, which I mm-hmm. thought I was until I started taking higher level math courses at UC Berkeley. And then you realize, wow, the guy next to me seems to be uh, rotating an object in 13 dimensions in his head maybe I'm not as good at this math thing as I thought I was. (laughs) (laughs) How many
0: liberal arts majors had that moment? (laughs) I can be a doctor. I can be an engineer. Yes, I remember those days.
2: Exactly. So um, like a lot of folks, I think, who had that epiphany, I uh, decided to do the next best thing, which is go to law school. Um, But (laughs) I've had an incredible career (laughs) as go to?
0: Did you go to, uh, what is it, still called Bolt?
2: No, so I went to Harvard Law School. Um, I've
0: heard of this place, little school in Cambridge, yeah.
2: Yeah, little school in Cambridge, and had a great experience there as well. A very active conservative community there. Um, and it I think was uh less politicized at the time than it has been uh become than it has become in the last few years. Um so still had a, a a great experience and was able to find a community of like-minded folks. Uh, at HLS uh, many of whom I'm still in touch with
0: well jay i I could talk with you all day you're an infinitely fascinating guy and I, I you you say there's you know no no conservative like a convert um you know conservative (laughs) in the sense of really endorsing the program of the people you convert to i feel that way you know i was raised in a nice catholic conservative home my dad was a a yellow dog democrat who you know voted for reagan and voted mostly for republicans but you know family history um so uh, and my mother was a you know what some people call a country club republican very moderate woman public school teacher um and you know I. Strayed away from that for many, many years, much to their chagrin, but they continued to love me through it. And <laughs> but, but, you know, when I stumble back into conservative thinking, it's through real philosophy. It's not numbers. It's philosophy. Um, and it, And I think it's really much more like a returning home for me. Uh, in your case, I you know you don't just I don't know drive around the world, hit Israel and Texas and California, and settle into San Francisco as a conservative. Is were you just raised uh, with conservative principles? Um, did you ever uh, experiment along the way in college?
2: So I wrote an article for our uh, our policy journal. Uh, expressly about why i am a republican why i'm a conservative it, it's you'll have to bear with me a little bit because obviously we're talking political philosophy here so we're going to get kind of highfalutin um to me the essence of american conservatism as distinct from european conservatism is that what we are trying to conserve uh is the set of ideals that motivated the founding right um, and those can be described for lack of a better term as classical liberal ideas. But really what they get at is this natural rights theory that your individual liberties are vested in you and exist outside of and predate the creation of the political community. Um, and that's where I think American conservatives and American progressives differ. There's a long tradition of American progressivism. Um, I think that if you want to learn more about American progressivism, you should read John Rawls or, or um, Isaiah Berlin. But really, their, their thinking is that individual rights emanate from your participation in the political community. And um, as a result, the questions we should be asking is how do we define those rights in the way that results in human thriving conservatives say no 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 because there's a your rights are yours you can freely alienate those rights uh as part of engaging in a social contract to a society and because of that um because of that uh government only has the right to do as much as you have uh consented for it to do now obviously none of us are expressly consenting to live in a modern society and this is kind of where i think conservatives and anarchists differ conservatives are are, are more realistic they say okay well you don't expressly consent and so because of that government should just be circumspect and limited and think through what uh powers it has okay so that's my vision of conservatism why why am i a conservative i think it, it it Oftentimes, you'll hear people say, well, if you're a minority or you're an immigrant, you have to be a progressive. Why would you be a conservative? That's crazy. I think that that's exactly the wrong way of thinking about things. I'm a conservative because I'm an immigrant to this country, because I am a minority. And that's because I fundamentally think that it is at odds with human dignity. And I think it's very precarious to assume that my liberties only uh, that I I only possess them by the leave of the society because boy if you are a minority in that society that could turn around on you real quick right you I think that that's a very dangerous philosophy to ascribe to I think it, it is more compatible with human dignity it is more securing of, of minority rights to believe that no your individual rights are vested in you. They come from you. They come from a higher power, however you want to describe it.
0: Talk to me uh, real quickly. We'll uh, close out here with some uh, lightning round exit questions. <laughs> this is not like in the actor studio with, uh, what was it, James Lipton, where I've got this set of questions you already know, and I don't ever <laughs> do this, but um, you're an intriguing guy. Um, do you have, like, if, if a progressive came up to you and said, give me you know, an essay or a book— to start with, you know, I'm a reader. So give me a good book for you that sort of lays out. And look, you're on the spot here. I'm not going to ask you to hold to this yeah. answer even in an hour. But what what book or books, would I what thinkers would you yeah. point somebody toward? And and this is just you, and it you know the listener may vary, but it's somebody who says, "Yeah, I'm interested in philosophy, and I'm interested in ideas, and I don't understand what you know what conservative ideals you're trying to preserve." Where would you where would you point them, do you suppose?
2: So it would depend on um, how uh, how academic minded I guess this this progressive is, or but I guess very very academic minded. I would say read Robert Nozick, right? One of the foremost uh, natural rights slash classical liberal slash libertarian philosophers of the late 20th century. Slightly less academic-minded, read Thomas Sowell. Not that Thomas Sowell is less intelligent than Robert Nozick, but he's more accessible. He writes for a yes. more popular audience. And then I would say, if you're just interested in conservatism you're not necessarily interested in the polemic. You just kind of want to understand who conservatives are, what the Republican party is read, uh, Matthew Continetti's the right, which is a book that came out last year. Fantastic survey of what he calls the war for, I think American conservatism in the last hundred years.
0: Yeah, it's a great book. I, um, somebody handed me in 1998, I believe, um, the conservative mind, um, And uh, that was followed by Friedrich Hayek and all of this stuff. Really, kind of cracked me open, but it was mostly the graciousness of the people who were offering these things. Their humility. What struck me about conservatism is different from progressivism was the humility associated with conservatism, and that struck a that still strikes when I say it. A lot of progressives is insane, uh, but here's what I mean. Progressives believe that with just the right regulating class, the right regulators in place, and the right laws, we can just twist the knobs, pull the levers, and boink out pop. Perfect human <laughs> beings living in a utopia, where you know disagreement is ameliorated, where all tr- civil strife is mitigated, where, uh, as the prophet said, justice rolls down like water. Um, it is you know it, it it there really is this utopian mindset, which is anything but. Um, humble it is in fact more reminiscent to me and you know because of your faith too i think you know it reminds me of the tower of babel you know the human enterprise to be like god the 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 original sin i can be like god if i just eat from the true you know from the, the the apple um that there is this humility on the part of conservatives that says i really don't know what's good for you um, I'm going to leave you alone to sort out the mysteries of life on, you know, on your plan. And I won't coerce you into believing mine. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, we wear government lightly. I love that you made the distinction between anarchists and conservatives because I, I raised that almost immediately with my first conservative interlocutor. So you don't believe in government. You just want to be like, I don't know, Central Africa or something <laughs> you know, where there's a civil war that's been going on for 60 years. Um, You know, he had to quietly remind me that we are humble and we believe in natural rights, which are observable throughout humanity. Um, okay, uh, last two questions for you. Favorite, uh, favorite film, you mentioned Michael Bay. If you had to pick a movie right now, maybe one that's up for a, an Oscar, uh, maybe something that's older, just pick a movie you'd like to spend some time with. Like if oh you had a you know, desert island movie, you, yeah. you, you land on a desert island and somehow have streaming.
2: My my wife is going to kill me because I'm I'm st- slowly starting to become. I feel like there are certain films that are associated with men of a certain age. So for yeah. my dad's my dad's generation, it was like, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and Shawshank Redemption. And mm-hmm. so now I'm going to start dating dating myself. So my favorite movie, which I constantly talk about, is Heat, which I think mm. is just Michael Mann's Heat. It is. I think this very interesting parable of what it means to be a man sorry i know i'm getting really highfalutin mm. here mm. what it means to be a man and the demands that society modern society places on men um and how people deal with those demands in different ways and okay. it's just a great great crime thriller shoot em up
0: that's fantastic uh okay and uh music talk to me about music are you into music
2: i am into music um and I'll right. tell you,
0: let me just paraphrase, yeah. let me let me like contextualize a question. One of the yeah. first early, this is one of the deeply troubling things. Like, I came up through uh, punk rock and so have this deep, still abiding affection for, pick one band, Rage Against the Machine, you know, which <laughs> is a Southern California phenomenon primarily that went global. Um, and I can remember listening in the car to Rage with my kids, <laughs> it was that kind of dad, still am, and um, thinking, holy cow, the lyrics in this song about the CIA behind, being behind the murder of Malcolm X, um, that's just historically inaccurate. You know, <laughs> if I'm really wedded to truth, I think I have to give these guys up. And it was David Bonson, my co-host on the show, who said, don't be an idiot. You know, art is art. Rage is great. Uh, David's into hip hop. That's why his his other podcast on National Review, uh, The Capital Record, um, Double Entend, um, <laughs> you know, it opens with with pretty powerful rap. So uh yeah. talk to me about your musical preferences if any.
2: Eclectic, I guess. Uh I'm listening to a lot of uh baby music. We have a little one at home at the moment. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. The I'll I'll maybe give um a recommendation for folks who are uh like you into punk rock or were into punk rock uh and live in California, especially Northern California. Um you're the gonna dead, say dead Kennedys. The dead Kennedys. Yes. Man. I mean, come on. These <laughs> like, first off, Jello Biafra, uh, crazy guy, uh, ran against. I think he ran against Gavin Newsom for mayor. He San ran Francisco, for mayor, and then he ran for governor against against uh, Jerry Brown. And they have two of the greatest, what I think are like conservative punk rock songs of all time: "Holiday in Cambodia," number which, one. Put the lie to the you know Maoist communist nonsense that uh, had infected the American left in the 70s and 80s, and California Uberalis, Uber which Alice. is just this two and a half minute trash talk of Jerry Brown, and it's yes. hilarious. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I love your thinking. Well <laughs> chosen, my friend Jay Dundee, uh the one of the founders and the president of the Briona Society in San Francisco may uh, god smile upon your organization and spread it statewide and then nationally um jay thank you so much for coming on the show
2: thank well it, it was a pleasure
0: Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks for spending your time with us. You can always find Radio Free California on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and far better for us if you just subscribe. And, of course, rate and review the show wherever you do subscribe. That boosts our profile and helps others find and join this band of brothers and sisters. Email us with your comments and story suggestions. You'll find our email addresses and other fun details in the show notes. On behalf of David Bonson, Lance Christensen, and Jay Dondi, thanks as ever to Session Producer, National Review Podcast Producer, Thanks also to Metalachi. That's the LA-based mariachi metal band for our music. La Revolución continua in la semana próxima.